morning. I'm so glad that you are here this morning to worship with us, either in person or live online. That's exciting either way. Um, how about we do this? Uh, Cole, would you mind standing to your feet and opening us up in prayer nice and loud? That'd be helpful. Amen. So we're going to continue in worship then by uh, just sitting under the word. Our goal here is that our hearts are conformed to it. Um, it's easy for us to move quickly past what God has for us. So what I want you to do is just sit there. I think it's 987 in your Bible if you want to, uh, in the Pew Bible, if you want to grab that. Um, but I'm just going to ask you to do something maybe a tad different. I just want you to close your eyes and just receive the Word of God as it's read over you. I'm just going to read the whole passage all at once, and then I'll kind of refer back to it throughout the course of the morning. Um, but our goal overall is that we are changed by God's Word in spirit-filled community. So that's what we're going to be driving at in a couple of different ways this morning, and we're going to find that in His Word through His truth this morning. So here we go. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 13 and ending the chapter, he says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, and I love this, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen. You're being persecuted by people who are familiar to you. From your own, they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. But since you were torn away from us, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. This guy was zoom exhausted, as they say, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, and Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Father, may you bless the reading of your word and now the preaching of it. So that's the biggest thing that we're going to do is just hone in on this idea that we are changed by God's word in spirit-filled community. Paul in chapter 2 has just gotten done the first part of it talking about how he and his companions lived among the Thessalonians. Now we say lived, it kind of gives this impression that he and his, and his companions were there for like a long time. They really weren't. 
they were present with the Thessalonian church, we learned, for about three to five weeks, give or take. And that's how the church got its beginnings. But Paul, in that time, and, and you can read through this in the first part of chapter 2, he talks about a mother's love. He said, this is how we were among you. We had like a mother's love. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, so being affectionately desirous for you, we were content to share not only our lives with you, but the gospel as well. So there's this picture that he's saying, like, it's not, like, I don't just deliver a word of truth or a message void of a relationship that just doesn't happen. And so when I came to spend time with you, I was like a mom. A mom is wrapped up in her child. She is somebody who, who desires to share truth, but, but not truth that's void of relationship and connection. So that's, that's just like the hallmark of a mom. Find a mom who's not relational. It's weird. It just doesn't happen. Like moms connect, okay? And then he, later on down in chapter 2, he talks about a father. Like Paul has a holistic love for these people, and he only spent a few weeks for them, and it's all because of how they received the word. That's powerful. Paul talks about it in verse 12 in chapter 2 where he says, um, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you to walk in a manner. Now, that sounds more like a father, right? Mom's going to be nice and relational, connected, and the father's going to be like, exhort, encourage, let's, like, let's keep going. But what I want to do is this. I just want you to turn to your neighbor and ask the question, what are some jobs or roles of parents? When you get it, feel free to shout it out, you know, like in some order so that we can hear it. But go ahead. What are some roles of parents? All right, let's, let's uh, go ahead one at a time here. If somebody has one, go ahead and shout it out. To help their kids. The well-dressed Robert says to help their kids. Very nice. Anybody else? To feed, their kids. <laughs> to feed their kids. That is such an expensive task. Man, anybody else? Discipline. D- discipline. Yeah, um, spare the rod, spoil the child, right? Any kid who does not have consistent discipline runs amok, but a kid with some level of discipline displayed through a parent who loves them deeply actually is a blessing. It's a gift to discipline our children. Thanks. Anybody else? To protect. Yeah. To keep the peace. <laughs> to keep the peace. It's a lot harder in bigger families, right? You get like all these kids together and it can just be raucous and nuts. And like as a parent, sometimes you feel like you just have to put on the referee jersey with the whistle and that's kind of what you're doing. Yeah, I love it. But Paul says it's exhorting, encouraging, and charging. That's a little bit of what it's looking like. Exhort means that you support or you encourage action. That's interesting. So if I'm going to actually um, be a good parent, or in this case, if I'm going to be a good discipler, I am going to encourage action. You're going to read the scripture, and guess what? I'm not going to let it stay there as a good parent. I'm going to go, oh, isn't it so neat that he did his devotions today? I'm actually going to encourage action. Like, okay, um, who might God be asking you to love today or to serve today or to humble yourself and repent of some sin? Like, I'm going to encourage action. And then Paul also says that it's about 
encouraging. And encouraging, especially from the biblical connotation here, is this idea of giving emotional support. Now, as a parent, this wasn't said, but every parent in here knows this. Are there times that you have a kid who is emotionally just crushed, just wrecked? And like the worst thing in that moment is to come in hot and be like, see, you screwed this up. This is all your fault, right? Paul actually talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 5, how, how you're supposed to engage all people. And I'll, I'll preach about that here in a few weeks. But the, the cool part is that we recognize, how do I give emotional strength to a person? What's most helpful as a discipler, as a parent? So Paul uses those parental terms. The last thing he talks about is he charges. And you're like, charge? Actually, the, the Greek word charge is the same as compel to testify. I don't know if you've ever thought about it quite like that, but if I'm going to charge someone to live out their faith, I am going to compel them to share their faith, to testify the good works of Jesus Christ. That's awesome. I don't know if you've had time to do that recently with a neighbor, with a friend, with a family member, where you've talked about how has God met you? How has he encouraged you? And all of a sudden, it's like your, your faith is growing. That's what Paul is talking about. And so Paul is like surging with excitement here. So we're going to look at verse 13 when he talks about how they received the word of God. He said that it wasn't as words of men, but it was the word of God which is at work. Well, it's interesting. See, the overall idea, and and I put the, the title there for that first point, as sticks and stones. The overall idea is words matter. Words matter and words shape us. They matter and they shape us. Now, when he says you receive the word of God, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, which is the word of God. What's the word of man? The word of man is temporal. The word of man is fickle. The word of man is weak. The word of man is ineffective. The word of man cannot bring about the change in your life that God desires. And so Paul says, I'm glad you didn't receive our gospel message like that. I'm glad you didn't roll out the welcome mat to a self-salvation project where if you just attend church early and you're like really good at serving, then you're close to me. Instead, he's like pointing to, how did you receive it? You received it as the word of God. And you're like, well, what's an example then of how they received it? Well, you saw it in verse 9 of chapter 1 where they did what? They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. So one of the things that the word of God does and how it shapes and it changes us is it brings about repentance. There is a standard and I don't have it. That standard is Jesus Christ and his righteousness and he makes it available to me because of his life, death, and resurrection and my faith and trust in that. It's critical. So it brings about repentance. And he also says to serve the living and true God. So it's repentance and then changed priorities. It's not just turning from the bad thing that you did or do to nothing. It's turning towards something, toward a calling that God has placed on your life. And I guess the good question would be, why else would you suffer persecution unless you were convinced that the words that you were believing were actually those of God? Maybe that's a good question for ourselves to ask. 
Am I willing to endure the persecution that may come when someone makes fun of me for my faith? Am I up for my faith and not cower and back down because I really believe it to be the very word of God that's contained within me? Do I believe like that? You see, overall, God's word is powerful. We've all heard this phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will ever, never hurt me. It's patently false. In fact, it's one of the greatest falsehoods there is. Because words matter and words shape us. And if words matter and if words shape us, then sticks and stones, they may break. Guess what? So will words. Words will break my heart. Words will crush my candor for Christ. Words will shift me into a different direction if I'm not rooted. You see, what, what images are conjured up when you hear that phrase? When you hear the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, what images are conjured up in your mind? Just toss it out. What do you think? I think of grade school. I think of that phrase being used in grade school by like teachers or by other people like, you're dealing with a bully? Oh, well, sticks and stones may break your bones. Or you say that to someone who's pestering you? The reality is it's, it's very deep. I'm sure there's people here who are thinking, because I fell into this crowd at one time or another, oh, I, I agree with that phrase. Somebody else's words don't have that much power. I don't really care what others think or say. And I would just say, really? How's that working for you? Outside of Jesus Christ, how is that working for you? And maybe I would just say it this way to just really get our attention. We often let a lesser word define or direct us to a destiny that God never decreed. And you may say, well, uh, how? Um, think of it this way. I do a lot of counseling, tons. And I meet with people. I remember having a conversation a while back with someone who said, you know, growing up, my dad always said da, 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 about me. And he never said directly that I wasn't beautiful or that I wasn't lovely or that I wasn't desirable. But I came to this place where that's what I really believed because all he ever did was compliment my intelligence. And that was it. And so now when someone comes to me and says, oh, you look nice today. You know what my first thought is? I disbelieve it. I think, oh, they're just saying that. And all of a sudden I begin to judge motive and I head right after what they're... And here's the interesting thing. They have let a lesser word define them toward a direction or a destiny that God never decreed, that God never said. You see, the word changes us because it's powerful. What Paul is saying here is that the Thessalonians received the word in affliction. That means like in process, actively engaged in, you are suffering for your faith. That's how you received it. And he's also saying, I, I started out here, and I came through Thessalonica, and then I went to Berea, and then I went and now I'm in Corinth. And you see all of that in the book of Acts chronicled for us. And in each place, Paul is run out of town and afflicted for his gospel message. And so here's the question. If the gospel message is delivered by Paul 
through the power of the Holy Spirit in suffering and affliction, how do you think it's going to be made more true and deep and real in your life without suffering? How do you think that God's going to somehow communicate the gospel love he has for you with the life of ease? He's just not. In fact, Jesus promises the opposite in John 16 when he says, in this world you're going to have trouble. But what is your train linked to? I have overcome the world. That's the second half of the verse. So Paul is saying that the Thessalonians received the word in affliction. They endured trial and they were shining examples of gospel change. Maybe a quick question is, are you? Am I? Is the way that I'm carrying myself, living, walking, breathing, serving, loving, is it something that people would look at and be like, his life doesn't make sense without Jesus? Like if someone removed the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit from my life, would somebody around me, would somebody around me be like, oh, there's Doug? Or would somebody be around me going, who is that guy? So maybe truth to life, whose words are most shaping you? Whose words are most shaping you? Is it your husband who said something unkind to you that you're just holding on to? Is it a teacher who made a remark and, and, and called to attention your lack of ability in the classroom? Is it a coworker who is cutting and cutting and cutting all the time and you can't get around it? Whose words are most shaping you? Or maybe one of the things that I love, at the very beginning when Paul says we are constantly in prayer, and he's talking about how he is constantly excited for, while he's interceding for these believers, for how they receive the word of God. So maybe another good question for us to be asking ourselves is just this. Um, are you celebrating other people's reception of the word? So when I come together and I talk with Nate, Nate lives right down the road from me. Okay, and we're having a conversation. Is it uncommon for me to ask a question like, you know, how's your time with the Lord lately? What's God showing you? How is he speaking to you? And then when Nate says, oh, man, it's been rough. It's been a couple weeks, haven't been in his word. I have, I'm, I'm like right there, I'm confronted with this issue of true community. What am I going to do? Well, good luck with all that. Have a nice day. Or am I going to take the time to pray? Am I going to take the time to lean in, to get to know, to support? Because part of community is he's down and I'm up and I get to pull him up. You see, we're changed by God's word and spirit-filled community. Second thing we're looking at this morning is just this. Uh, I put down other brothers and Satan's demise. It's in the last number of verses, starting in verse 14, chapter 2. But the basic idea is just this, that joy over the word is fuller and richer in community. We can have those mountaintop experiences with the Lord all alone, can't we? We can grab our Bible and we can, he can meet us powerfully while we're just alone with a cup of coffee looking at the sunset or the sunrise, and he's just like, I love you. And you're reading his word, and it's powerful, and it's good. But when there's another one, and another one, and another one who are testifying to the good work of God through his word to encourage you, doesn't that lift you up? 
Doesn't that strengthen you? Doesn't that prepare you for the battle that you're going to continue to have day in and day out? Doesn't that endurance and a shot in the arm when you're going through a credible loss or when you're looking at something of uncertainty, doesn't it? I would hope. You see, Paul says this in verses 14 through 20. He uses the pronoun you and your 12 times. Like, well, why is that really significant? (laughs) Well, with the exception of Philemon, the book of Philemon, all of Paul's letters are to people, to like a whole church. And and not a church like we have here, right? The the American West is obviously a little bit different than first century Palestine. So here's the issue. Um, There would be numbers of house churches like in Thessalonica, not just like one. Okay, and so Paul's letter would have been delivered by the hand of Timothy, and then the encouragement would have been, hey, I want you to pass this along to the other churches, the other people who are called out by God's good grace, um, and, and I want you to have this letter read there. So we break it down and we preach on uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through 20. Everybody in their context would have sat down and read 1 through 5 with no chapter designation, no bathroom breaks, nothing. Would have been like the whole thing, Okay. And so you're taking all of this in as a community and it's powerful and it's shaping and it's directive and then it's encouraged to be passed on. And so that's how these letters are given, but it's never written to an individual. He's not saying, you know, here you go, Doug, just to me. But does it have individual implication? For sure, for sure, because individuals make up community. You can't have a community with no individuals, (laughs) right? But an individual is not a community. And so Paul's letters are often written with descriptors of people together as a called out ones. In fact, the term church or ecclesia that you see in the Greek is just this picture of a gathered people called out for a particular purpose. And that's to worship and glorify God and and, and extend him of God through gospel. And so I just put down a couple of thoughts here about community. Number one, in community, you suffer together, not alone. In community, because you suffer together and not alone, you have a desperation to know God more intimately and more deeply that is shared. Number two, others are up when you're down and vice versa. Have you ever found that truth to be pretty self-evident? That there are times when you have good gospel, Jesus-following friends who are around you who you're having just a cruddy day. And maybe you reach out to them or maybe they send you a text or a phone call and it's at just the right time and the words are just the right way and you're like, man, that's crazy. Not really. (laughs) That's kind of how the Lord works. But it always is powerful. The third thing that community is this. The gifts of God and the fruit of his spirit are in community. And you're like, well, what what do you mean? Well, when Paul in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12 and in 1 Peter and in Ephesians 4, when he's listing the gifts of the Holy Spirit, gifts can't be practiced in a vacuum on yourself. Gifts are given, Paul actually says this in 1 Corinthians 12, for what? Each one was given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Common needs more than one. 
And it's the same thing with fruit of the Spirit that you see in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, right? How many of those are we practicing on ourselves? You need a community of believers around you to practice the fruit of the Spirit, to display what's actually happening as you're being constantly renewed and revived on the inside. That's what's happening, and you need other people around you to practice that, to, to display that. You can't do it by yourself. So then it would make sense to me why Paul gets to verse 18, and he says, Satan hindered us. We tried coming, but Satan hindered us. See, Paul received satanic opposition as he went to share the gospel. It happened in Philippi, happened in Berea, happened in Athens, happened in Corinth, happened in Thessalonica. You can follow all of Paul's missionary journeys. He always had satanic opposition. And I would just say this. Satan will always oppose change brought by the word and spirit of God. He will always oppose it. So when you're, man, we're so busy, I can't make it to my life group tonight. That's a shocker. Right? Oh, man, someone's sick. Nate, Nate shared this where he said, sometimes we just sent our kids, right? So the first 242 life group that I was in was with Nate before we um, multiplied. And one of, the, one of the crazy things about it was like, there were seasons where like maybe Jessica's health wasn't so great. And so it was like me coming with the kids to our life group. Or there were other times where it was like, hey, anybody know where Nate and Beth are at? Nope. Just got all their kids. And, and we laugh about that, but here's the deal. Wouldn't you do that with family? Yeah. And, and, and actually... I, sh- I should have a club with Nate because of Jesus than I do with my own blood family. Scripture is pretty clear that my priority and my love is, is bound first in Christ. That's powerful. So Nate gets to a place of comfort where he's like, yeah, I can send my kids. And I've done the same. That's amazing. That's how God really begins to shape you and change you as you recognize that. But Satan will always oppose change brought by the word and spirit. He always will. Notice what Paul does or how Paul sees this. Number one, he discerns that it was satanic oppression. It was demonic. It's not just like a hard day or a rough schedule or a difficult night. It's demonic. Sin has its roots in demonic activity. So we need to acknowledge that. And that's what Paul does. He acknowledges that by saying, we tried again and again, but hey, we were hindered by Satan. Second thing is he had faith. You can see this when it says, for a short time. Paul is just saying in verse 18, for a short time, this was occurring. Paul's got faith. Like, hey, we're going to plow through this. We're going to get through. He persevered. You're like, well, how do you see that? Well, it says eagerly and with great desire and again and again. So Paul is not someone like who knocks once and he's like, nobody's there. Okay, I'm out of here. No, Paul's like knocking kicking, <laughs> jostling the door handle, looking in the window. Paul's not giving up. Neither should he. You see, he believed the promise in Romans 16. In Romans 16, 20, says this, the God of peace, remember Shalom, the God of the absence of striving. Wow, that's powerful. The God of the absence of striving will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. That's a promise. That's what God will do ultimately in Jesus Christ. It is guaranteed for the believer. 
Why would I not believe it? Why would I not walk it out in faith? So Paul, who was prevented from seeing the church at Thessalonica, now in Acts, you fast forward, it's a couple of years later, and guess who's back with the church at Thessalonica in Macedonia? Paul. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 5, chronicles Paul's revisit to them. And so Paul, even though he was hindered at first when he was at Corinth and he couldn't go see them, now actually gets to go see them. And and, and the whole thing kind of comes together. God brings the victory. So just in closing, from a truth-to-life standpoint, I want you to consider this. How does Satan meet his demise when it comes to community and the Spirit of God through his words shaping us? Well, he meets his demise, rehearse the promise. Yes, God will soon crush Satan underneath my feet. He's going to do it. He's done it in the past. He will do it ultimately in Jesus' return. And then you confess your need. This is the part that I want to lovingly, but very firmly and very directly challenge everyone in this room. I don't think that we all know how deeply we need Jesus. Here's why. Because if I pull out my wallet, I can pay for dinner. If I pull out my wallet, I can fly to a different state on vacation. I can make a mortgage payment. I can do whatever I need to do because I'm, I have a job in which I, right? So one of the ways that we begin to see Satan crushed is that we begin to confess our need. We say things like this. Uh, we'll use Nate again because Nate's a target today. So I'm like, Nate, it's been a rough week. And like I... This has been one of those weeks where I just feel attacked by the enemy in my thoughts. And I've been having these, like, like I'm just greedy. Like I look around, I'm like, man, why does this guy get to do a new addition to his house and get a brand new car? And, and would you just pray for me that I could humble myself and be excited for my friend who gets to enjoy the blessing? And, but at the same time, I can continue to trust and walk in faith. So we confess our need. Like, I need Jesus. Right now, I'm going to make a train wreck of things if I continue on my own, and I need Jesus. Never meant to do it alone. And the last thing is that you begin to walk in faith with others. You're casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. You're coming before his throne of grace uh, with confidence because you're going to receive mercy in your time of need. But ultimately... Satan is going to lose. And God's going to continue to shape you and change you. He changes us by his word in spirit. So I want to close this in prayer. I just want to encourage, I know, I know, there are people here who need prayer. My question is, will you actually humble yourself to receive it? There'll be elders who will be waiting outside, like in the office. If you want to chat and pray with one of them, I'll hang up here Um, and pray with anybody who needs prayer. But here's the the idea. Are you willing to confess your need if it means that somebody else might go, oh my goodness, did you see him go down for prayer? Like what's really going on in his life? The worst, okay? (laughs) Like everything bad and he needs Jesus. Are you willing to confess your need? That's what we're after in terms of change. Real change isn't going to happen until we say, I don't want to just coast through this life with the comfort of like, let's just get back to pre-COVID. I want Jesus now more than ever. 
more than ever. So let's close in prayer, and then I uh, will just pray a blessing over you guys as you depart, that the Spirit give you strength to do what he's called you to do this week. In your name, Jesus, we pray that we would be people who understand that God loves us deeply, and he sent you to accomplish what we couldn't. And then he, you give your spirit so that we can actually um, be on mission for you. We can share the goodness of your love of Jesus Christ, and at the same time, we can, we can be brought to repentance over how your word works in us. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you that you shape us and you save us and you move us off of ourselves toward you. As we leave here, make us a church, make us a people who are desperately needy for you. And it's in your strong name we pray, Jesus. Amen.